Today's interview is with Jason Bayless. For the past few decades, Jason has worked as an activist, working towards radical change with an emphasis on decreasing the exploitation and suffering of all living beings. From working with PETA to uncover abuse in Ringling Brothers Circus, to working to extend the voice of the Zapatista community to his own, Jason's work has centered around tapping into both community as well as the better elements of people to try and elevate the standards by which we all live to a more humane and respectful level. And for the past five years, Jason has operated the Radical Guide website, providing folks with a directory of spaces and places of importance that are part of the history of radical struggles the world over, places that may not appear in your local Google map. And most recently, Jason has begun to catalog the personal stories of how and where folks became attuned and radicalized to this persistent stream of struggles, giving personal narrative and history to some of the places in the guide. So with that, here's my interview with Jason Bayless. Enjoy. How did you become aware about the idea of um, radical communities and, and radical ideas? I think for my my journey and my understanding um, was a, a slow, gradual burn through my whole life. Um, I grew up in in a small town in Texas. It was very predominant, you know, white supremacy. The Klan would hold rallies on the center of town on the courthouse lawn. Oh, wow. um, we, you know, it was it was it was majority white, uh, white folk, white beliefs, you know. And I didn't know any better, but I knew what I was experiencing and hearing. It didn't seem right or feel right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always kind of been kind of the. Not the hyperactive would be the right word, but I've been high energy, um, intense um, person, especially when I was younger. So I was, you know, always a troublemaker, kind of finding ways to push back on on things that I didn't agree with, but not not realizing I was doing that until hindsight, you know? Right. Um, And as, as I struggled with not ever feeling like I was belonged in the town that I grew up in. Um, I was constantly searching for new ideas, um, new people, new music, everything, you know, all of those combinations coming together helped me see a different path, you know, because I discovered, which is probably common from most of us, you know, discovering punk rock was, was something that, you know, really opened up the imagination to another way of thinking, you know, sure. There's various, various slices of that, you know, cause uh, California punk, you know, early eighties, late eighties versus, you know, punk from other places in the world, quite different, but the the energy and the imagination was there. Um, And I think that captured my imagination. And since I did grow up in a small town in Texas, you know, I grew up, you know, uh, on my family's land where, you know, we slaughtered animals. We, you know, raised cattle, sheep, pigs and stuff. And that's, you know, that's what we ate, you know. So I would, before going to school, would have to load up animals onto the trailer and take them to the slaughterhouse before going to school um, and come home and feed the animals and water and, you know, build a relationship that way. Um, and it was it was always bizarre to me in that sense, but I could never pinpoint why it felt bizarre to me until later in life. Um, and then at those slow the slow burning moments when you get the aha or you see the path forward is like you're like oh wait this this speaks to me and it speaks to me because it's authentic to how I want to live in the world or see the world, you know. So early on, I became vegan. Um, and when I became vegan, I told my mom, my mom cried and said I was going to die. And oh <laughs> you know, it's just challenging the, the mainstream thing. What that, year was this? This was 
Probably 90, yeah, 93, 94. But that was it. I mean, like, that was what helped me kind of take the path of, like, if I'm going to do this because it feels right to me, then I need to know this. Uh, So I would do my own research. And this is even back when the Internet, you know, people think of Vegan Outreach, the, the organization now with these fancy colored you know, pamphlets that they hand out. Back then, it was a text document that you printed <laughs> off, right. off the web, and it was, it was really nothing. Um, and so, I, you know, I would just use the limited resources that I had to, to read up on it and get the talking points until it became an embodied understanding. Um, for me to say, no, this is this is the right path because I didn't know anybody who was vegetarian. I didn't even know anybody vegan. That word didn't exist to me at the time that I went vegan. Um, I just knew. How did I you could. discover it? I want to say I saw a, a band in Fort Worth, and they mentioned it, or they mentioned vegetarianism, and it it wasn't like it stood out to me, but the words stuck to me. And then what really, what the, the pivotal moment, I met up with a, a guy, his name was Tan, Tan Vaughn, and he was a Vietnamese Buddhist. And we we would, you know, get coffee and hang out and, and talk. And he decided that his temple was having a festival and he, he wanted to invite me there. And um, we went in. And the elders of the temple were pissed that I was there. Um, they didn't want me there because I was a white dude. And this oh, wow. is, their, this is their, their sacred temple. But the, the younger generation actually took me in and said, don't listen to them. They're stuck in their ways. We want to show you what we're about. And they walked me through the temple, talked about why they believe the things that they believe what part of that was, why they didn't eat animals. And for some reason, the combination of being met with resistance and then being accepted in that resistance at the same time made it where I listened, I think probably listened different than I would normally have. And their reasonings why they didn't consume animals really, really spoke to me. Not on not on a... a like the spiritual aspect, but just at the core, core yeah. belief of reducing suffering. And then that night, as I decided, you know, I can't, I can't eat meat. I don't, I don't want to eat meat anymore. This is kind of just kind of been that slow burn that build up to this, this plateau. And I was like, I can't eat meat anymore. I went home, went to sleep, woke up thinking about dairy. And I don't even know why I was thinking about dairy, but I was thinking about dairy, thinking about the cows, thinking about the process, thinking about just the the whole mechanized system that produces milk and cheese and dairy products. So I was like, I can't even support that. So I started doing some research. I was like, can I survive not eating, you know, dairy, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when I found the word veganism. And when I found, like I've mentioned before, um, Vegan Outreach, and there was another group that's no longer around that was predominant back then. Um, I'm just reading on those. And then from there, that's when I, like that same day, after I learned the word, learned what it meant, learned that this is a real thing, that's when I told them, you know, I made the declaration to my family saying, I'm not doing this anymore. Wow. That, and and so, you know, like a, a lot of our food, in, in the United States, at least, um, it's very mechanized. So, like having grown up on a farm, um, y'all were not using. Did y'all have dairy on your farm? We didn't have dairy on our farm, but down the road, we there was a dairy farm, you know, and, roughly and walking like, distance from where we lived, and we could, that's where we went and got our our milk, and then we made cream from that and whatever. Um, was it mechanized the way that like the main like like let's say you know uh, a milk producer that would distribute to a city was was it mechanized at that level or was it less mechanized? It was it was less mechanizing. You know, they didn't have the the 
the feedlots, you know, that like you see in California and other places that are just miles and miles and miles. Um, but it was concentrated. I mean, you 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 didn't want to drive by the, the, that farm because it it always had a smell of disease diarrhea. It was just oh my it, God. it was just so so concentrated, and that was you know everybody's most common. That's why you know people don't. That's just what dairy dairy farms smell like. Um, wow. So it was it, it was concentrated. It was it was mechanized in the sense that you know. They did use machines to milk, and they, you know, the the things that you hear on factory farms and industrialized agribusiness, um, where the cows get, you know, the udders dry up, they get disease, they, you know, um, the the male calves are taken away from the mother because they're useless on a dairy farm and made into veal. That, hap- that happened on, you know, this small family farm, just just the same. Wow. And a slaughterhouse, you know, that we would take our animals to, it was, you know, a small quote unquote family run slaughterhouse, but the mechanisms are the same. The the cattle didn't want to go in there. They scream, they were forced in there, they're hung up by their hind leg, their throats were cut, they were bled out, and they were processed. Um and all of its it was acceptable. I mean, as a kid, I remember on days, you know, like when we on week go on weekends, that I could actually stand in the killing floor and watch the whole process happen. Nobody cared. Wow. You know, it, it's. Um, I went vegan probably in the mid '90s, and was something something that occurred to me was people used to watch people get beheaded in in, in like France back in maybe like 17th century, 18th century, they would watch, you know, basically the poor get guillotined. Um, and and they would do it in a way that it kind of became clear to me that one of the reasons they were able to watch it and enjoy it was because of the, they really thought like poor people were kind of like different species almost. Um, and it kind of illuminated to me like this kind of draw between being able to kind of you know, people watch these executions of animals and, and that kind of same thing of being able to watch executions of people, you know, cause there's like this difference that they're putting on it. Um, when you were going through this and you told your family, was there any kind of pushback in, in terms of like them thinking that you think you're better than them or anything like that in declaring this? I think, I think that, Mentality shows up a lot anytime you talk about veganism or animal rights. Um, I don't recall it showing up in my parents. I think they may accept the idea that it's probably a fad, something that I'm going to grow out. You know, you, you can't do this kind of thing. It was kind of more of a disbelief, not a not a a power over mindset that they were trying to justify. Um, yeah, so I, I don't, I don't think, I don't recall that ever being an issue now with my parents. Yeah. I mean, I definitely can recall with other people. <laughs> right. Well, so having discovered that, how did you get into doing activism around this? Um, well, I've always been in, tried to be involved. Like when I was in middle school and high school, um, there's there's always just been a drive to question because I hated where I grew up. I didn't hate the people. Right. I just hated hated you know. I think that's just maybe common thing that young kids don't like where they grow up. But I really didn't like where I grew up, so I would question everything that I saw that I thought was being accepted as normal normalized. Um, you know, growing up in in that town. Domestic violence was always, you know, a, a conversation amongst us. You know, we'd have friends that talk about how their fathers beat their 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 moms, or boyfriend would beat their girlfriend. You know, there was just domestic sure. violence was always, always for, for whatever reason front and center in conversations, but not not to do anything about it, just to talk about it. Um, and so, I always like would write papers and 
do speeches when assigned in class to talk about domestic violence and what you could do to get out of it. And so I've always had this mindset of just kind of, it was more of a self-discovery than trying to educate others. I was trying to educate myself. And the best way to do it is to write about it and talk about it to other people. It was my mindset. Um, well, that kind of idea of doing that, you know, anytime I would go somewhere, people would, you know, offer you food and you would say no, and then they would get offended, offended why you said no. And then you tell them why you would say no. And then, uh, you know, just the, the domino effect of like, the conversation, whether productive or non-productive would happen. And so mm-hmm. just taking the path of like, I need to get involved and help kind of elevate my ability to talk about this and also to elevate people's awareness um, of these issues. So I, I sought out other people doing it and I met up with some friends who lived in Fort Worth and Dallas and uh, then got connected with the Animal Liberation of Texas and the Houston Animal Rights Team of, um, and multiple groups throughout Texas that were focused on, you know, direct action animal liberation work. And so we would, we would organize across Texas. We also had, you know, weekends where we'd go out in the woods with group, multiple groups and do three-day training um, weekends like first day would just be let's learn about everybody's issues and then um the following two days would just be around you know let's let's get everybody upskilled so like when there's a call for action regardless of what group we can show up and do you know lockdowns tp lockdowns uh, you know direct action stuff and this is also in the heart of the heyday against neiman marcus um across the country so we would constantly organize to get to band fur at Neiman Marcus and do lockdowns and other other actions from there. Neiman Marcus, um, the uh, department store? Yeah, the department store. Kind of to explain just for folks that might not know. Um, so direct action, um, what does that mean? Well, there's a, there's a wide spectrum um, of what direct action means for people but what i'm speaking about it here i'm speaking about doing specific actions against institutions companies um, to stop business for the day to draw awareness to an issue to uh, you know part of it to get media release so uh, media coverage so our message can be broadcast out wider um, but at the but the very simple is, is, is to stop money coming into the business so you you would either lock yourselves to the front doors block the front doors block yourselves you know to each other to cars to different a, a, a wide variety of things to stop business as normal for whatever target you're looking at in this case it was Neiman Marcus and then kind of like the opposite of that or, or not the opposite but the the counterpart to that like would would be sharing information just to share information um yeah yeah like yeah. Yeah, like a, a typical pro- protest you know you'd be out with signs and chants and handing out leaflets engaging in dialogue to um encourage or discourage uh consumers from entering or purchasing from that place um to raise awareness about an issue would be a typical protest a direct action protest would be one where um you you just elevate it a bit more and take they're actually losing money from it (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) um did you so so what time frame was this occurring in do you you think like uh what year i'm trying to trying to kind of engage like societal reactions to this stuff probably 94 95 ish let's see if i can pull up some information I, I ran a website back then called Vegan Power, um, and I'm looking at uh, Internet Archive to see if I can get the time frame from these actions. Oh, wow. Well, that's a helpful resource. Yeah, Internet Archive has so much great stuff on there. I guess the whole reason I was kind of wondering about the time frame is were the groups being labeled that you were involved in, were they being labeled as terrorist groups yet? No, this is before the 9-11 Animal Enterprise Terrorist Act. So we were doing this 
in Texas, and then I moved to Norfolk, Virginia, 2002 or 2001. And then shortly after that is when the NMLA Enterprise Terrorist Act happened, and that changed the face of everything of how we organized, how we talked about things. <laughs> I'm not even – I wasn't even aware of that act. <laughs> I, like, I knew that things had changed, but I didn't know it was literally called that. Um, can you talk – like, like explain what exactly that was and, and what it – maybe what it was aimed to do and what it actually did? Yeah. Um, well, I think there's – uh, it's been a while since I've seen the documentary. There's a documentary about uh, Shaq shut down hunting life sciences um, campaign called Animal People, and it's a documentary about the folks that, who were organizing that who were charged with terrorists under the Animal Enterprise Terrorist Act. They were the very first group to be targeted um, as terrorists, you know, by protesting. Um, animal enterprise. They were they were working on vivisection laboratories of hunting and life sciences, and there's pretty much all they really did was run a website to expose um, what was happening at hunting and life sciences. But they were the first to be for the animal enterprise terrorist act to be used against, and it was animal enterprise terrorist act came about right after 9/11 in the fear-mongering of fighting terrorism. It, the animal ag agribusiness, milk and dairy, fur, et cetera, um, took advantage of this and pushed forward um, this this law, this act, that would s simply said that if you cause any economic damage to um, an animal enterprise, whether it's at, you know farming, fur farming, uh, dairy, meat, in, in any animal enterprise, uh, then you can be charged as a terrorist under the full extent of the law. Um, it's no different than what we're seeing now and over the past couple of years of make, trying to make it illegal for folks to film um, what happens inside of factory farms or chicken houses, um, trying to label them as terrorists. It's just part of the industry to stop citizens and consumers to expose what's happening in these industries, we have a right to know, and the industry is constantly fighting to keep us from doing this. And the Animal, Animal Enterprise Terrorist Act is a great example of the industry doing what it can to stop us from exposing the abuse within their industries. It, I mean, it's very interesting because you're talking about, you know, a, a, like after 9/11, you know, there was a lot of, you know, like let's get rid of terrorists and all that. But that's usually towards people. Like, how can you? be a terrorist towards a business. Like, I don't know, like it's a very interesting. Uh... That's, a, that's a great question because um, some of the other work that I do is under, in the United States, corporations are considered people. There's, there's legal precedence that, that enforces this. There's in fact movements and work being done to um, remove Corporate constitutional rights is what it's called from the U.S. Constitution because corporations are considered legal people. And is so this through the Thirteenth Amendment? There's there's multiple um, there's multiple precedents um, that that make this true for corporate constitutional rights. Yeah. Kind of jumping back to the filming thing, um, I know at some point you were actually filming. Uh, treatment at at the Ringling Brothers Circus. Um, mm -hmm. Would you want to talk around how you kind of developed and, and got involved in, the, you know, the stuff that led you to be able to do that? Yeah. Um, like I mentioned, I've moved to Norfolk, Virginia. One of the reasons, or the main reason that I moved to Norfolk was because I got hired by PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And for the longest time, I was I was a campaigner for, for PETA. And around 2005-ish, I transitioned from the work that I was doing there into the Animals and Entertainment Department of PETA. And okay. when I when I transferred to that department, I 
took on following the Ringling Brothers around the country, city to city, state to state. The Ringling Brothers has three units, or they had, <laughs> sorry, they had three, <laughs> um, three, three units on the road. Two of them traveled by train, and the third traveled by truck, semi-truck. So they would load the animals up in semi-trailers and drive them across the country. And they were designated by collars. There's the red, red unit, the blue unit, and the yellow unit. The yellow was the one that trucks, the red and blue were by train. And I would follow the train units city to city and meet them at the city, at the train track where they would pull up and document from that point of unloading the animals, the elephants, the uh, zebras, et cetera, document filming them walking from the train tracks to the arena that they were in. And then I would organize protests for every day that they had a show and any downtime document where I could. Um, animals in captivity at the arena and then also film from the time that they would leave the arena back to the train and then race them to the next city and did that for multiple years. And the purpose for that was to, one, organize, as I said, organize the protest to raise awareness about the issue and two, to document the abuse, neglect, and any other things that I saw to the proper animal authorities, you know, whether it be local animal control, whether it be USDA um, or other industries so we could have a track record and keep putting pressure on them to get the animals off the road. So that's why I spent a couple of years doing that and then they went out of business. That's pretty amazing that you were able to do that. I mean, first, just the idea of being in a train yard, like how did the company approach your presence? Because obviously at a certain point, they, I mean, did they know you were there? I mean, I'm sure they would have had to become aware. Yeah, I'll share with you after this um, some videos that, that I took from there. So, yeah, it, 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 they knew I was there. I was out in the open. I, I, I did all of this out in the open for the simple reason is, one, I had nothing to hide. Two, the circus was viewed as bringing money into the community, so the police always protects industry. So the mm -hmm. police were always on Ringling's side, so if I did anything... <laughs> That was of a suspect. I mean, they, the cops were on me all the time, um, but it's just something that you get used to, and it's it's the same rhythm. So once you get the rhythms down, it's easy to just brush it off and keep moving, um, and and know your boundaries. And I, I had legal assistance, so anything ever came up, I could call them up and say, "This is happening. What should I do?" Kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I was just, I was out in the open, you know, they, they would harass me. They would, I had, it got to a point where I had to have somebody film me filming them just so that we could oh, document wow. what they were trying to do to me because they would, they would throw uh, at, at previous times they threw gasoline on the people that I was with. Uh, they would, you know, they'd try to taunt you and say stupid shit to us. But we just maintained course, and we were there to film the animals and report whatever abuse we saw. What was that experience like for you? I get single-tracked. I'm a type of person who, when I get involved with something, I get very single-tracked, especially back then when I was much younger than now. Um, so it was it was just a very focused time for me. Um, I, it was It was great to meet people across the country and talk to people and, and learn why they got involved with animal rights. And then it was also great to talk to the people who were going to the circus and stopped to talk to us to learn more about and turned away from the circus. So it's just the, the, the moments of interacting with people were phenomenal because I just love hearing people's story and being connected with people. And then the moments um, while I was filming, I was just, you know, laser focused on, I need to make sure I'm documenting what's happening to these animals and anything else happening around me can happen around me and I'll deal with whatever it is once I'm done. And and what was your experience with, um, how did you react to what you saw being done to the animals? And, and basically what did you see happening with the animals? Um, well, the first question, how did I react to it? it yeah. Just like everything, anytime you see, any any form of abuse it does it does 
weigh heavy on you. Um, you know, there's there's been times that at night, you know, you, you have to decompress <laughs> from what, what you see and decompress yeah. from the stress. Um, so there's a, a lot of that. So, yeah, it, it definitely, I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat it and say, oh, it was great. But, you know, it's it's never pretty when you're dealing with abuse or oppression and you're trying to, to change that. Um, so, yeah, it's taxing. It's taxing on the body. It's taxing on the mind. Um, but that's it's, they call it a struggle for a reason, I guess. <laughs> um, when it comes to um, Ringling Brothers and circuses, the people who handled the elephants held what they called a bull hook. A bull hook is a long metal rod, and at the end of it, there's two hooks. One that's curved and pointed, and then there's a um, a point at the top of it. So I'm trying to think of how do I describe this visually. Like if you took your index finger and your thumb and you made like a, a pointed gun um, okay. shape and your arm was the rod, your thumb, if it's sticking straight forward, would be the point at the top and then the, the curved hook would be your index finger. So essentially that's what a bull hook looks like. And both of the your, tip of your top, tip of your thumb and tip of your index finger are really sharp points. And, you know, you, you would hear Ringling say on, on news, well, they're not sharp. They're not, this not, doesn't harm them. That, that's a lie because as, as most of us know, elephant skin is very thick. So, the reason it was sharp is because they would go into sensitive areas um, of the, on the elephant, under the arms, behind the ears, with these sharp things, and really dig it in to to move the elephants and get them to to respond to the way that the ringling wanted them to respond. And this caused great pain to them to the elephants. This actually broke skin. We had footage of. Uh, on the road, walking from the train to the where the handler would try to redirect the elephant and rip the skin open underneath the arm or behind the ear, and we would have to report that. Um, and these these elephants do are afraid of these bull hooks because this is also what's used in training of get these elephants to perform these tricks that these elephants wouldn't normally do so they use pain reinforcement to get them to do the tricks there's a, a video on youtube you can find it uh, one of the ringling trainers he was with carson and barnes i think at the time of a training video where he's he's beating the shit out of elephants and telling the other trainers to do do the same the guy in that video is the dad to one of the guys that are in all the videos that I had when I was on the unit with with them. So the the trainers with inside, I hate calling them trainers because they, they didn't train shit. The handlers of Ringling and all other circuses would work with multiple circuses. So the family lineages of one circus would be attached and work in another circus because it's just a small, oh, a small wow. group of people who do it. And when you're, you, you said in this that you would report them. Um, who would you report them to, and would anything actually be done when you reported it? Well, it would be the USDA. It would be to local animal control. Um, the process that I went through, just because I had to be on at times, would be I would write what I saw, mark the timestamps of the video, and send it back to the office so they could actually make sure they are on top of reporting. Um, all, all the all the things and then I would be there to like if any um, USDA investigator or local animal control came up I'd be on the spot to talk to them and give a formal report. Did you know of anything that actually got done because of any of the reports you filed? No, because when it comes to animals and when it comes to seeking justice things move super slow. So what would normally happen, we would do the report, 
you know, because Ringling was in town for a weekend. You know, they they would just be there for a couple of days, and then we would have to uproot and hit the next city. So since it would move slow, I never had to deal with talking to too many people, you know, investigators um, on site because I'd be already in the next town. But what did come from it a lot is I would also hand out flyers to Ringling employees, you know, the entertainers, because, you know, they're, they're, they're human performers in, in Ringling as well. So I would connect with the human performers and hand flyers out that would ask them to become whistleblowers and have them share their stories of what they experienced of animal abuse on there. And during that time, I had a couple of people um, step forward, leave Ringling, and give their their testimony, their sworn testimony about the abuse. So that happened more than me talking to the actual officials. I mean, you can go to circuses.com, I think is still the website, and you can see all the reports, federal and local reports against Ringling at the time. If you look at the historical archives of it, they were frequent and, and constant. So the, the reports were being made, people were being aware of it. Uh, it's just the industry is just super slow at trying to make change. And that's why I, I'm a big supporter of multiple tactics. I mean, because that's why we would also organize to protest in front of the in front of the circuses every time they open their doors. Because if you also putting pressure on them in terms of what they're doing to the animals putting, and putting pressure on them financially, um, th- that's those two are going to put a greater pressure on the industry and people are going to start um, turning away. And that's what we saw happen. You know, the last couple of years that I was following Ringling, the attendance were dropping off dramatically. I mean, there was, they were giving away tickets because just to fill the seats and we were turning them away left and right. And it was, it was really great to see people who went there with their kids and family to stop, you know, the kid would point at the poster and go, what's wrong with that elephant or what's wrong with that zebra? And then we would talk to, you know, the parents and the parents would learn about it and they would either hand us the tickets and say, they're not, not going to go. Thanks for letting them know. Or they said, this is, they're, they're here with their kids, but they promised that this is their last circus that they would attend to. I think that had a, a huge impact on Ringling closing doors because people were just being exposed to what was happening and knew it wasn't right to support people making profit or just people in general just abusing animals for the sake of entertainment. Were there many other groups that were also working against Ringling or was it primarily y'all? No, we were, uh, uh, there were groups across, across the country working on it. Um, it, uh, all the reason I reference PETA here is just because that's who I was employed by to, during this time. But I worked with so many groups across the country. You know, when we were getting ready to roll into town because we're f- following the trains, we w- I would talk to grassroots organizers um, in every city that we're about to roll into, saying, "Hey, let's organize this. Let's let's you know get to the street. What do you need?" Um, and we would organize that way. So there was people on the ground doing the work, the daily work. Um, and I tried my best not to make it be a case where, you know, a national organization rolls up and steals the thunder from the local grassroots because that's really shitty. And right. we didn't we didn't want that. <laughs> well, that's amazing that y'all were able to collectively cause that much of an impact. Um when you wrapped up that work, um, what did you end up moving on to? Well, I went from because see, Ringling went on break because that's what they do. They they're, they're seasonal, so they mm-hmm. what they do is when they go on break, they they all go back to Florida, and they either go back to the compound in Florida, or depending on the schedule, they go to a state fairground in Florida and set up shop there. So I followed them down to Florida, got the information that I could of where they were setting up, where they went. And then I went back to Norfolk. And then from there, I went to Manhattan 
and started documenting the horse-drawn carriage industry and following the horse-drawn carriages around the park when they give rides to people, uh, documenting exhaustion from the horses, whatever abuse may have come up, um, documenting the the toxic environment the horses are in because like they're walking in city streets of New York their noses are at the same height as tailpipes of the cars in front of them. So they're just constantly breathing the exhaust from that. Um, So we we would document that they, they live in a building and, and Manhattan um, kind of a barn building. The horses do. Um, So we just document, we just try to document and put pressure on, on that industry while, other folks were looking and working and trying to get instilled a um, alternative to horse-drawn carriages in New York, which they're still working on. There's still great work happening around that. Wow. So you're talking about like the, the like the, the ones that you can rent, like that will take you to like Central Park and something like that. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get involved in that? It's part of a, one of the ongoing campaigns that that we were focusing on at the time. And, you know, like there was, I had a break between Ringling and I was like, I'm, I was already in that rhythm. So I was like, let's go to New York. <laughs> I was reading over some stuff you had sent me and it said that you had worked in uh, one of the groups in Chiapas. How and, and kind of when did you shift to also um, dealing with like human rights issues? I don't view it, it, and it may be accurate, but I don't, I don't view it as a shift. I think human rights issues have always been part of the narrative. I don't view them as separate, isolated things. I think there are tactics that you do that enhance one over the other at times, but I think it's all the same, the same work. Because the nature of oppression that happens to animals is the same, same nature of oppression that happens to people. It's it's a idea, like you mentioned earlier, it's like the idea, this idea of separation that we have amongst ourselves. The, the ability to look at animals as lesser gives us the ability to abuse them. The ability to look at poor people as lesser or people of color as lesser um, is a separation from from those people. So I think both, you know, the old saying, animal rights is human rights. I, I, I do take that at heart. I see it as one struggle. Um, it's just the tactics and the, and the, and the focus that may become different, you know, uh, uh, following wrangling versus elevating voices of the Zapatista movement. Um, I think the organizing and the message are both very, very similar, if not the same. So going back to your other question, uh, yeah, I was on, I'm no longer, I, I was recently on the board of the Chopin Support Committee of Oakland. And what the Chopin Support Committee is, is there a grassroots collective that serves as a center for education and information about Chapas and the Zapatista communities of Mexico. So the idea is to, is like, one, to support get financial support, lift up the narratives that are coming from there, showing that another world is possible and it's happening now, it's happening in Mexico. And to take that inspiration to say, how do we develop those types of communities where we live? So there's there's support committees throughout the world that are pretty much doing the same work. The, the, the manifestation of that work looks different based on the creativity and interest of the people organizing, but it is to just, you know, educate and share information about what's happening with within the Zapatista movement and explore how can we develop that new world, that better world that we deserve where we live. So, I mean, like, what would y'all do per se? Um, you're, you're distributing information about uh, the struggle um in Chiapas, but then also are these groups doing stuff in their local communities based on those theories or or philosophies or? Absolutely. Um, Within the Chiapas Support Committee, they're lucky to be part of the Omni Commons, which is a collective-owned kind of community center in Oakland, California. And 
they would do a wide variety of community works from doing art inspired, you know, bringing artists from the community and doing art that's, that was inspired by uh, Zapatistas, bringing folks from Chafas up to talk, to raise awareness, have musical events, um, have community education events, all, all different types of things. So like once a month, they would also have, I think it was called Zapatismo and Waffles, and where they would serve coffee from the beans that were grown in Chavez, Mexico, and waffles, and do kind of community education about the history and the struggle of the Zapatista movement, and then also encourage folks to stay around so we can actually look at what, is, what would a Zapatista movement look like here in the United States specifically in Oakland, California. And, and for people that don't know, Zapatistas, they were, or they are a, um, they're a group of folks that are indigenous to uh, that part of Mexico, um, but that had basically taken control of the state of Chiapas at a certain point, um, but in like a revolutionary means. Is that about correct? Or <laughs> how would you describe the Zapatistas? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the kind of from the historical aspect of it, back in uh, January of 1994, uh, the Zapatistas Army of uh, National Liberation embarked on an uprising in Chiapas. And so what happened, there's multiple layers to this, so let me see if I can summarize it quickly. What happened was the land was taken away from the people. It's given to pretty much corporations or industry, and it separated people from the land. And then with the NAFTA agreement, uh, the North America uh, trade agreement, it destroyed, essentially destroyed farming in, in Mexico. You know, when we when we hear conservative voices say that people are coming across the border, taking our jobs kind of stuff. Um, one of the main reasons that it's happening, not that I would say that, but um, is because of NAFTA. We've destroyed economic industries, destroyed farms and family farms and people's relationship to the land in Mexico. So now the, now the people in Mexico um, have a choice. They have a choice to either starve, starve to death or go where they can make money and supply for their family. So in protest of NAFTA, uh, the Zapatista Army of National Liberation did a 12-day uprising, and they took the, the farmland back and, and gave it back to the people and started developing a society and a culture, you know, that's of the people um, and not from a capitalist mindset. So in, in short, that's what the Zapatista revolution and the Zapatista movement kind of sparked from, and, is, and it grows um, more in terms of, you know, taking care of the people, taking care of the land, being reconnected to to place, and it's an it's been an inspiration for movements since that time. I mean, even you look at what's happening in Syria. Um, there's a lot of inspiration is being taken from what the Zapatista Army of National Liberation has done. In, in Syria specifically, um, are you talking about uh, forgetting that group's name? The PK. What is that? Yeah. Yeah, and and that's a group of. Um, is it primarily women that are, that are organizing over there fighting? It's a mixture, uh, but it's both of men and women who are um, working um, to build an autonomous region in Syria. Yeah, I think the reason you, you, you're pointed towards and asking the question about women is because that is definitely part of an important part of it because they – there's there's a narrative of you can't have liberation if it's just run by men. Um, right. So w women are put front and center. Um, there is a deep value of of people within um, you know this autonomous region, and there's great intention, and they're and they're doing this, which what makes it really amazing for at least for me, is they're building this new way of being together building a new society, building a new culture on the front line of fighting, you know, the threats of ISIS and other terrorists and the United States um, and Turkey. And, and they're doing this on the front line of battle, which is just really a, completely amazing. Is, is the Zapatista movement similar and, 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 and it, it's trying to put equality um, amongst um 
folks of, of different sex? Absolutely. Absolutely. They are. Um, I think it's, it's fundamental. I think that's, it's critical resistance in the face of, you know, this, this, the capitalist system that they're challenging is, is like the reason we are in the system of separation of superiority is because of ideas that, you know, when we look at male versus female in the in, in, in that bubble, um, you know, you have to dismantle the idea that one is superior than the other. And then you also have to break that bubble and not have it be so binary because we know it's not binary. Um, and that's, that's an important part of the tools to liberation. And we're seeing it being applied and practiced in both Syria and in uh, Chiapas. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of that, the way it was developed here, at least in the West, uh, in the United States, it was really developed around like trying to just have these families be able to have someone work and someone take care of children so that there could be more children to work so that like, I mean, like, like, like this, I feel like a lot of the kind of sexism came from this strategy of basically making people as economically viable as possible to the economic system they're in. I mean, mm-hmm. how, how, how would you react to a statement like that? No, I, th- I think it's right. I think the the model, at least in the Western worldview, is for us to identify as consumerist and and nothing more. And so, if we if if that is our identity, then our actions will follow to achieve that identity. And like what you said, for us to be prepared to be in this trap of that we must work to make money so we can spend money. We must work to have, you know, the better house, the better car, the, you know, again, it's, it's a separation from each other and, and connection to a material thing. Well, and it's also the suspension of understanding of what these products are. I mean, going back to kind of where we started here, a lot of these industries depend on us not fully understanding or not really seeing what they are. And Mm -hmm. they seem to collapse on themselves the second we actually get a look at what's going on, you know, be it your realizations about, um, you know, animal rights being human rights um, or in the case of, of ringing, um, you know, the actual treatment of, you know, what, what, most children would walk to and say, oh, my God, this is a beautiful, you know, this is a great thing. There's an elephant. Look at that. Um, exposing that as, as, as a abuse. Um, it, it really depends on that kind of suspension and, and almost disconnection of the, you know, the process of what the thing is from the end product, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. is, do you feel like things like the Zapatista movement and the movement in, in um, Syria address those issues of it, too? Yeah, I think fundamentally, because um, in Syria, you know, one of their go-tos is um, Bookchin. Bookchin's philosophy or approach um, is is centered at it, at what is happening in Syria and how to how to build the um, the new world from that. So it's it's by far the center of um, of, of changing that narrative. One thing I want to talk to you, um, kind of starting to wrap up, I want to talk about what you've been doing with, um, this project you have on the internet, um, kind of cataloging where people became radicalized and kind of get an idea of like, I don't know, like when I came across that, I was like, wow, that's, cause that's almost like something that I, I talk to in every person I interview on this podcast is like, <laughs> You know, the first thing we always kind of start off is, is like, where did you come to know that there were other ideas than, you know, what's just shown to you on TV? Mm-hmm. Um, one, what was the idea behind starting this? And, and two, what have you learned from, from running it? Um, yeah. Well, um, let me b- take a bit to get to your question because I want to give some – um, background. We, I started a sure. radical guide um, about 
Actually, it'll be five years in January. Our anniversary is coming up. Yay. Oh, wow. Started Radical Guide five years ago. And it stemmed from multiple places um, of thought. One is back before COVID and before when I would travel more often than I do now, uh, when I go places, I would map out where quote unquote radicals are, whether it be an anarchist bookstore, whether it be, you know, a punk club or something, just where I would know I would have access to more radical thought. I would figure out where those are and the locations that I was going and then go visit them and then just meet people and talk to them. And then I was on a trip and I was in Paris and I had my my map in my in my phone that I made out uh, that had all the locations, all the, you know, anarchist locations, bookstores, you know, gra- grave sites, historical markers, et cetera, mapped out. And I was standing in front of one of the bookstores and I was just thinking, I was like, man, I wish somebody would do this. I wouldn't have to always do this research before going going on a trip. And then I was like, well, you know what? I, I can do this. If it's not out there, I'll, I'll build it and make it. So I went back to the room that night and started writing ideas down is like, what does this look like? How would I do it? And then when I got back to the States, um, I have to bring Thomas in on this because, you know, we have to kind of tip ads to Thomas for bringing us together. So yeah, sure. um, <laughs> when I came back to the States, Thomas and I went to, we were, I think we were getting ready to go to a subhuman show. Um, but we met up at a, uh, at a vegan donut shop in Oakland and we were sitting outside talking and, filling our bellies full of sugar. And I and I shared this idea with him. Uh, I was like, hey, I want to think about building this. And, he, you know, from that point, he became kind of a thought partner um, with me of, like, what this could be, uh, things to consider. Because, like, we, we went round and around for a long time. He's like, he was like saying, you know, if you use the word radical, it's going to turn a lot of people off. You're not going to be able to reach a lot of people. But I was hell bent on using the word radical. So we had a long conversation about that. And um, eventually after the conversation, I went back home and started building the website. So long story short, the goal of Radical Guide is really just to highlight issues and lost causes that focuses on the histories and stories, places, and people of resistance. Started off as kind of uh, online directory um, of radical locations around the world. The first two months that from relaunch we jumped up to like 200 radical locations around the world. Anybody can go to the site and add the location. So if if your favorite spot is not on the site, you can add it, and it's user generated. And one of the reasons of doing this, other than not not having to do it for myself every time I travel was also the idea that, you know, if we don't talk about this and normalize radical thought, you know, anarchist thought, anti-capitalist thought, if we're not normalizing talking about it, we're losing so much. So I wanted to have a space for people to to see what's happening in their backyard and connect with, with those people, whether it's organizing or just being in conversation with wherever you live. And this this thing has blown up, and and the and the idea that that conversation element of it has grown. I'm now in conversations with people in the Philippines and Australia and the UK, and we're just constantly sharing ideas in collaboration on projects, supporting each other. I do fundraisers for other groups because I think the best thing that we do for Radical Guide is just kind of lift up the voices and the actions of what other people are doing. So that's the nutshell of the website to get to your question about um, talking to people I just started last probably about a month ago now, maybe less than a month ago, a piece where I'm inviting people to share their stories of how they became or how or where they became radicalized. So you can go to the website and fill out a form. You can either record your own story or just send it in text form. And then I will take it and then, put it on the website. So normally what's been happening is people just been sending text versions of their stories. So I've been working with people who do voiceover work to read their story. And then I turn it into a video and share it on the website. um, So they can also share it with their friends and family. And I I really like it because it's, it's, it's a great way for us to 
learn how people have come to these conversations. I think it's just great for people to talk about it because we don't talk about it enough. One of my favorite stories right now, they're all really great, but one of my favorite stories right now is an Appalachian anarchist is the name of this, what I named the story. You can go to radicalguide.com to, to listen to that story. But it's about a, about a, a guy who identifies himself as an Appalachian white, poverty stricken, coming from not understanding what struggle was in terms of what it means to be anti-capitalist, but just really dealing with the life that he grew up in. And then once he got out of that community and was able to talk to other people for the other perspectives, broke him open to see different, uh, a wider path forward and discovered what anarchy was. And now he's like, this is the path. This is the world that we need to build. It's a really good story uh, about his struggle, about his life. And I think it's really important for us to to uplift these moments where we hear from each other and share these stories. Because at the end of the day, this is what's important is that people are seen and heard and, and, and are able to speak their heart. Cause like what I was talking about at the beginning of this conversation of like, you know, having that slow burn radical element in me and not knowing what the word veganism was, but trying to find a path forward. If I just had other people who were talking about it, if it wasn't for that band to mention vegetarian, if it wasn't for, um, the youth of that uh, Vietnamese Buddhist temple taking the time and sharing their stories. I, I wouldn't have been inspired and, and been able to see a new path. And I want these stories and I want Radical Guide to be able to allow people to see what's possible and to sure. achieve their greatest dreams. And I want to be in collaboration with folks around it. So that's my ramble. <laughs> I mean, what you're basically saying, I mean, it's, well, it's, you know, like history is, really written by the victors, they say, you know, and, you know, that can be by suppression of culture. Like here, here in Richmond, uh, we have a thing called Monument Avenue. And um, when we had a bunch of uh, protests in response to George Floyd in 2020, um, the city, you know, one of the first, you know, viewed as the capital of the South during the Confederacy, uh, people were asking for these monuments to be pulled down. They ended up getting pulled down. Um, it was kind of amazing. It, it was crazy that the city that has such a racist history, these things actually, we were in a position where as a city, we could be like, yeah, they're coming down. Problem is, they're now fully down. And if you didn't know that they ever were there, you wouldn't know by looking at it. I almost wanted them to leave the pedestals. Um so that you would know something came down. <laughs> um, but what I'm thinking about now is you thinking about you and, and Paris there. Now there's stuff like that where if you don't know, you might miss these struggles that are kind of inconvenient for people in power to talk about, but that have this long history. And, and like you're saying about the veganism thing, there's actually a word for it. There's a language for it. There's previous thought on it. And I mean, what you basically constructed is almost like a Google Maps of anti-capitalist things <laughs> and a book your own fucking life like MRR used to do, but of like cool fucking places. I mean, that's yeah. that's pretty awesome. Um, trying to carry that stuff through culture is very hard. You know, like Chomsky says, we're, we live in like an atomized society now. Everyone's so, you know, to themselves and this kind of thing. So finding a way to kind of use what we do, which is less, you know, in-person stuff. So, you know, leveraging the internet in a way that people can kind of connect individually, but then collectively come together. That, that's, that's really cool. Um, mm-hmm. To wrap up, I wanted to see if you have any advice for folks that, you know, want to get into activism or maybe are in activism, because <laughs> the other thing is you've, you've had a pretty long tenure here, um, doing radical work. I know people that have, you know, done it their whole lives. And I know people that have done it for five years and burnt the fuck out, given up. What would you recommend for folks to do, um, maybe with their lives or with their minds to be able to approach this in a way that is sustainable in trying to, um, you know, bring help and, and rights and freedom to other folks? I don't know. I, I mean, 
there's no right path forward. I think you're coming from is the most important part of it, or one of the most, maybe not the most, but one of the most important part of it is you're coming from. Um, because in my, and I, and I speak it from my experience because my coming from was looking at a, at a world and knowing something wasn't right. Connect with what you know in your heart is right and then seek the folks who share similar views and be in conversation with them. I think that's the easiest access point because everything else, I'm not, I, all the training and all the learning and all the things that you need to do to be effective at strategy and applying and doing that, that, will, that comes from learning from each other. That comes from doing and trying and being with others in it. So I, I would just say, if your heart is telling you something is wrong, go with it, follow that path, and then you'll be involved. I mean, like that old saying is that um, you're never neutral on a moving train. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we're at a point where we're saying, I'm an activist, I'm not an activist. I think we're at a point of saying, you're choosing to act or you're not choosing to act. So be honest with yourself on that. I think that's going to be the best fuel forward. And that concludes my interview with Jason Bayless. I'd like to thank Jason for taking the time to talk with me. Links to some of the resources mentioned in this episode are on this episode's page at our website, variousthingspodcast.com. And if you want to add your own narrative or find radical places of importance near you, check out his website at radical-guide.com. This has been Various Things. Thanks for listening.